This is Untimely Reflections, a series of conversations with some of my friends, streamed here through the Nietzsche podcast. Well, no, but I was going to say, you're, so you are aware there's a character named Sephiroth. Yeah. So on the Jewish or the Kabbalistic tree of life, all of those little circles on it are called Sephiroths. That's where oh. they get that name. Yeah, it's basically like, it's actually a super cool concept, dude. It's like um, the, the, all of those are like vessels into which the Godhead like pours itself. And so God has this indivisible, unchangeable unity, but then it's like, you know, in the same way, water takes on a different shape when you pour it into a different vessel, sort of. It's, I don't know, it's super cool just because they have to like, what would you say, figure out um, <laughs> how to how to explain uh, all these like different metaphysical things when the core concept is that there's this single unchanging monistic explanation for everything and like have their cake and eat it too. And so you get really cool like lore um, as out of that. Yeah, and I'm sure in the modern day, someone looks at that and they're just like, well, this is just potential energy. And we're just talking about potentiality <laughs> and how that potential energy manifests in different forms of matter. They knew it all back then. Yeah, I sometimes that shit's cool and sometimes it's just fucking obnoxious. Like, and I, I'm I'm leaning more towards that, like the attempt at secularizing religious concepts or putting it into scientific terms or treating it as proto-science. I just find it really annoying. Um like I guess what it is is like people it's like the, it's insulting that people think that by taking rather than saying the the forms of the forms of god take many shapes that it's like somehow more informative or more revealing about the world to instead say potential energy has been you know like oh well, like i used a different lingo and now it's like cooler it's like no you just said the same shit I, well, people love big words yeah but they don't even like they don't like the metaphysical the old big words you know theological big words like exegesis and uh you know okay mystical transubstantiation of the spirit that this is i don't a like that. great place this is a great place to start off because at the end of your last podcast i had a realization and it, it was that um nietzsche's opposition to hegel is that history is not an eschatology mm, now yeah that's eschat- a good way to put it esch- eschatology is a silly word right but it identifies actually a subset of like religious belief that's really beautiful, right? I mean, in its own context, but like, if we're looking at history, we shouldn't like get stuck in this mindset where we're in this eschatological mindset, right? Like where we think we're at the end of history, right? And I think the people who think we're at the end of history are the same people, generally speaking, or the same movement that like is obsessed with eschatology, right? So what is Nietzsche then? I I think I'd make the assertion that Nietzsche thinks history should be a beginning of beginnings, that um, you see on every mountaintop another higher mountaintop, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... Sorry, go on. Oh, no. And I would say that's the deep and redemptive nature of Nietzsche, right? Like if you're actually asking what the essence of Zarathustra is, it's precisely this not yeah, eternal child yes exactly right so i'd also like to point out okay so 
the podcast today is about Ayn Rand's aesthetics in relation to Nietzsche's um, untimely meditations essay. And, and everyone this, who hates I, Ayn Rand can get fucked. I'm just going to say that right now. <laughs> First off. So I'll try um, to apologize for her silly BS. <laughs> um, I'm going to do the opposite. Oh, okay. That's good. Cause I can we'll do, do a good cop, bad cop. Yeah. yeah. So, so Ayn Rand thinks she's a romanticist and um, her book is called on aesthetics is called the romantic manifesto and people, she has like a bizarre definition of romanticism. So a lot of times people like look at it and she's like, they're like, ah, but like, is she a romantic really? Cause the romantics loved nature. Right. And Rand is like definitively anti-nature. So I think a good place to relate this to Nietzsche and romanticism in general is the picture, the wanderer above the sea of fog, right? It's this essential um, romantic painting. Um, and there are two ways to look at this painting. And I think it's incredibly interesting. There's a way to look at it and see that like nature is incredibly powerful and man is small. Or you can look at the painting and say, the wanderer is standing above nature, like he's dominating nature, right? And <clears throat> I think this is kind of the difference between like an optimistic view of nature where like man can win or like the view that man is doomed, right? Um, yeah, anyway. Or it's going to get like swallowed up, swallowed up. Yes, by, right, yeah. right. Is this, is this a Lovecraftian world? Or is this a world where man is efficacious, right? Where man's choices matter. Yeah, I haven't. That's interesting. You you put it that way because I'm I'm kind of thinking in real time here about because uh, I haven't ever really actually thought about that painting in those terms. Because um, I, um, if anyone's been listening since the beginning, I brought that up at the end of episode two. Uh, the Casper Casper David Friedrich is the uh, painter. And um, I talked a little bit in that, how it's a technique or a style they called rook and figure, which is where you're looking over the shoulder of a character. It's like third person video game perspective, basically <laughs> put it into yeah. modern terminology, decadent terminology for all of you. And, um, but what that does is that you, you see the figure, but you also end up identifying with the figure and you also end up, you not only see the figure while identifying it, you see what the figure sees. And um, so it, it, the painting places you up there with the wanderer, right? And you're identifying with, you're, you're empathizing in the sense of like being the wanderer um, in that moment. And so I think it is like, I think it is like a triumphant painting of, dominating nature i don't know if i'd necessarily like put it in those terms but i i guess um so so are you saying rand is more she tends to view nature that way whereas like a a lot of times we tend to think of like romanticism and at least in the u.s like in terms of the hippie movement where they're more like we have to give ourselves up to nature whereas i think i do see that that friedrich painting is like it is romantic, but it is still man dominating nature in a way. Or man, I, I would put it more like this, man triumphing over nature or like managing to assert itself within nature or above nature. Yeah, um, definitely. But I guess that's, okay. So, but, and there are, there are various people we would call romantic who don't do that, right? Like um, 
like Thoreau, right? Am I off here? I, I I'm not an expert on this anyway. Of the people, Thoreau is Walden Pond, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. um, uh, what was I gonna say here? Well, Sometimes like mix up him and like Emerson and some people. Like I've read all their stuff, but it, it, I don't know. I'm weird like that. I'll mix up names. Yeah. Um, sorry. Go on. Um. So, where, what was I gonna do? Give me a moment. Well, uh, just while you're thinking too, just to say briefly, um, I, I also just want to make it clear, I'm not like an objectivist or a Randian or anything, but uh, my comment earlier is just that to address the people who are immediately, um, people who think they're philosophers, right? And questioners or <laughs> um, free spirits whose brains will immediately turn off when you say Ayn Rand because they've had it beaten into them that Rand is bad. Um, just as a prejudice. And it's like, it's, a, it's like a naked on its face prejudice that apparently all the philosophy departments just decided Ayn Rand should just be hated and dismissed. Um, and so if you're one of those people who get fucked, I'll say it again, like, because that's just, that's just silly. Um, so I, I think it, it is directly related to um, what you were getting at that. Uh, let me pull this up. Uh, Nietzsche points out that people are motivated by drives and not ideas. Um, and where am I going with this one second? Today, all history tends towards the antiquarian in its meticulous science, like modern art tends towards what Rand calls naturalism or the projection of the world as it is, not as it ought to be. In Nietzsche's sense, the antiquarian is not devoid of morals, but for Rand, it generally is. Um, so Rand would refer to useless history as non-history in the sense Nietzsche would refer to useless history as contrary to life. So I think I've just like listed off a couple things. Rand is explicitly normative, judgmental, polemical. Um, and I think this is why academia doesn't like her because academia is carrying around with it this giant antiquarian burden of, um, of the past, which is fine. But um, I think going back to Nietzsche's essay. Well, and it's, I think it's an inappropriate use of the antiquarian and the way that Nietzsche talks about like it's been uprooted from its native soil and is not being, it's yeah, now a yeah. noxious weed because academics aren't really, what they're, the way I would, tend to describe them is that they're kind of guilty of what Nietzsche talks about towards the end of the essay of just being like these, these people rattling the walking encyclopedia yeah, yeah. Um, type people or people who have no subjectivity. And so that is kind of an interesting thing. It's like from the Nietzschean angle, your moral or normative uh, inclinations are going to flow naturally from the subjective. Now, interestingly enough, Rand would really disagree with that because her ethics are objective, right? Um, at least according to her. But um, it at least makes perfect sense within my worldview why she would be like that and why the scholars would 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 hate her guts uh, for that very reason. But yeah, um, oh, oh, yeah. definitely. Um, I totally agree. Uh, I guess personally, I don't think her ethics are objective, but I don't know if my opinions are necessarily maybe they'll come up later um so yeah it doesn't Rand, matter that, that, that distinction is 
I mean, who cares? Anyway, go on. Okay. Sorry. So Rand sees the um, Rand sees in art that it is becoming more and more journalistic, and it's more and more antiquarian or um, classicist, right? Where you're just reproducing exactly what happens, right? It's like this thing where like the artist is like, wants to get the truth. Like you get these, and they're great books, like a book like Kite Runner um, or these kind of like journalistic, um, like a million pieces by- um, uh, a, middle, a million little pieces? Yeah, yeah. Like- That's kind of ironic of, you bring that up. Well, I, my teacher, hurt. my teacher was the guy's brother. Um, <laughs> or one of my well, so teachers in high school didn't it turn out that that wasn't true yes yes exactly okay. right okay so um let me give uh think so it would have been better if it was just fiction sorry go on yes exactly exactly so let me um let me give rand's definition of art and i think this will break open her relationship to nietzsche in art and particularly this essay art is a selective recreation of reality according to the artist's metaphysical value judgments. That's Rand's definition. So the aspect of selectivity is precisely the aspect for Nietzsche, which represents a his, like the history of forgetting, the ability to forget things, right? Because we can't carry with us the totality of the past. We're not a fucking robot, right? We need shortcuts. We need like, we need, <laughs> we need mountaintops, right? Like we, yeah. we can't just rip up the earth like a giant and carry the entire earth on our back to the next like mountain peak. Yeah, we're not Atlas, right? Exactly. So well, and and just to to jump in really quick, there's a passage I think I've quoted before on the podcast, but I really like where Nietzsche says that poetry lays a metric gauze over reality, that the art has a function of hiding things because the selectivity that you're talking about it is yeah you have to make a choice of what you emphasize and what you de-emphasize what you focus on and what's in the background or what you don't talk about at all and so every single one of those is an artistic decision um which i guess it this constrained a postmodern territory but fine i mean i think it's true i mean like even an essay on the most hard-nosed scientific even if when we go outside of the realm of art um every single decision you make to include a certain bit of information you could have made a different set of decisions but it, with art it's um I, I mean it's like it's even more so because you're not even um you're not even bound to like tell the truth right or it's not expected that you're telling the truth so to speak like in an objective sense i'm sorry i keep uh go, go on with what you were saying no no that's a great little side point and and that's why you get all this silly things like um like they need, like there's this uh, movement to like make race represented or like sex or like gender represented at every level of art. It's like, it's like we live in a world now where like, you know, at, uh, how the Muslims at the end, like after they say uh, Muhammad's name, they say peace be on to him. Right. It's like, we have this thing where we have, yeah, yeah. yeah, praise be. On. I'm sorry if I fucked it up. I don't genuinely. Sorry. Sorry. Muslims. Um, <laughs> but but it's this linguistic thing which which shows domination it's like um if in jonestown okay that crazy place where they drank the kool-aid there was this people's shit temple. where yeah the people's temple yeah when you were talking about your family members if your family members weren't part of the church then you would have to call them my so-called mother told me to come to church this sunday right or my so-called brother visited me 
they put so-called as a prefix in front of all these people, right? So it's this religious need to like, I don't know, infect the language and everything with its obvious domination. And the sign of it is like the sign of the beast, right? It's, it's how you know that they're there, right? And it's like a, it's a, it's a domination. It's a territory claiming thing. Um, it's like a symbolic thing. Uh, anyway, sorry. That's like a little tangent from there. Um, yeah. So when we're being. No, I, I, when, I, I, same page, same page. It's, so uh, when, when we're being selective and we're trying to say deep truths about the world and we omit all of these silly symbolic things that represent domination of power, sometimes that can be, um, I think it can make political people uncomfortable when they encounter art. And I think this goes back throughout all history because art tends to step above the like politically symbolic and move to like the metaphysically symbolic. And this gets to the second half of Rand's um, definition of art, right? According to the artist's metaphysical value judgments. Now, what she's talking about here isn't exactly metaphysics in the sense of like technical philosophy, but just your relation, fundamental relationship to reality. So if you look at the picture of the wanderer above the sea of fog, what fundamentally is man's relationship? Is his, does he have a will, right? Does his volition matter, right? And is he or is he not doomed? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think those, like this, um, this cross section of like volition or non-volition and doomed or non-doomed is how Rand analyzes art in general, okay? And um, I guess, uh, let, me, let me give some examples here. Um, so, well, I, I mean, obviously, think you brought up Lovecraft earlier. Yeah. Because um, in that one, what would we say? Volition doesn't matter and we're doomed, right? Well, or does volition matter? Does it? Because these are what Lovecraft does. And this is the beauty of Lovecraft, right? Is he presents these highly scientific men, these men of great will, of great understanding, right? These are, these are the best we can be, right? They're strong military men. Generally, they're of sound mind, right? And this type of contrast actually makes the sense of doom more powerful, right? Mm, um, okay. So when so, you say volition doesn't matter, you're saying... It's just a question of do we have a will that's like potent or not, I guess you yes. would say. Yes, okay. yes, exactly. So you're not some, like, you you know the painting where the guy is screaming? Uh, Ed, Edvard Munch, the scream maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I would say there, um, there's not volition because it's just like emotion, right? Like, I right. think what she means by volition is man's reason or his humanness, right? Not his animalistic, like... Uh, like I think the metamorphosis is more uh, non-volition and doomed, right? <laughs> like, okay, like Kafka-esque uh, things. Yeah, are have yeah. Less volition. Yeah, a right. lot of existentialist stuff is going to probably be in that category. Right. Like there's a there's a story by Sartre called the uh, Herostratus, which is about a man um, who is kind of a a loser and an incel, to use the again the modern decadent terms. And he um, he's enamored with the story of Herostratus um, because Herostratus was a was a Greek in antiquity who burned down. I want to say burned down like the it wasn't it couldn't have been the Parthenon. He burned down like a famous temple 
Um, it might've been the temple of Artemis. I don't remember. He, ba he basically burned down a great monument and nobody remembered the person who built the monument. They remember the guy who burned it down. And so then the character in this story is like, that's how I'm going to achieve greatness. Um, but in the end, he like, he, he plans, I think on murdering a bunch of people, but in the end, he kind of like, ultimately it's not as spectacular as he hopes. Um, he doesn't really succeed in, like he maybe shoots a couple people, but it doesn't go the way he planned. And then the cops corner him and he's thinking, he was initially thinking I'll, you know, I'll take out a bunch of people and die by suicide. But in the end, he's too cowardly to commit suicide and lets the police take him. He, I, I always remember that story because he's got the gun. He's like in a bathroom stall and he's thinking like, oh man, if they catch me, they're going to like beat the living piss out of me. They might even put out one of my eyes. They're going to break all my teeth. Uh, I should just kill myself, but then he still doesn't have the strength to do it. That and is like awesome. That and is so an that, awesome story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, that's a non-volitional character. Or like he thinks he, he tries to have a will, but ultimately he does, he's not, he doesn't have the strength for what he wants to do. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess another, uh, like, so let me give an example, like another Lovecraftian style. Like I'd say Richard the third. Um, Richard III has like really strong will, but ultimately he's doomed, right? But we love him as a villain because he has such a strong will, right? And um, I think another one like this in this category, like these are actually times a lot of like they're thrillers, like because the world is so bad. Um, uh, like what would be another good example would be um, like Crime and Punishment. Um, so... So, okay, so we've gone over non-volitional and doomed or like volitional and doomed. So then what is like non-volitional non and like blessed by life, right? Like happy ending. I would say this is like- Calvinism. <laughs> I would say this is like the big Lebowski. Um, okay, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, or like much ado about nothing or like the importance of being earnest. Like- uh, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Yeah, exactly. Right. And these are generally comedies, right? It's kind of the essence of comedy mm -hmm. that it's all going to turn out okay and none of our actions matter. Right. Mm -hmm. But, and like if we think they matter, they never end up mattering in the right way. Right. Like the whole like right. contrast, right. The whole contrast between the dude and Walter is like Walter is so attached to the world. Like Walter is like, he's like way too attached, actually. It's like unhealthy. And the mm -hmm. dude is like not attached at all right and like the moral of the movie is to be like the dude not to be like walter right <laughs> like right but, but we love walter and walter is there for contrast right mm -hmm. um so but i guess non-volitional and blessed by life so like these are like comedies right so then rand would say um the last grouping is like and this is what she calls romanticism it's how she defines romanticism is that it's volitional and it's blessed by life man has will his will is potent and he will succeed like ultimately we do not live in a doomed universe right and she uses examples here she the main example she uses here is like victor hugo um but i think better examples now are like superhero movies because okay. yeah it's so captain obvious, america right? yeah exactly captain america he's a superhuman right and well and then importantly though he starts out as like a wimp but he, yeah, yeah. his heart, it's his heart, it's his willpower, transforms him into a hero, just right, solely right. by that alone. So, well, I think, and a serum. So, <laughs> right, right, super serum. So I think the influence of Rand and Nietzsche 
on the entire superhero genre is like not incidental, right? Because it's this, it goes back to this notion of like every beginning is a new beginning, right? And um, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I don't think this is at all incidental. This is the type of philosophy that will create the type of art that will put man's abilities at the center in an optimistic way, right? And it'll be popular, right? Like, if even if you don't like Rand, she sold a lot of books, right? Like, right. so even if you don't like the Bible, the Bible has maintained dominance, right? Bible so sold a lot of books about. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It was the most commonly printed book and most widely translated in the world until I think I think some modern fiction has surpassed it, which speaking as a dire materialist atheist, I do not think is a good thing, but anyway, go on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, like, that, that's kind of my, um, that's kind of my spiel on her. Okay. Um, her well, analysis. It, I remember you. So you and I have like, just talked about this before, um, like to some extent. And I remember, um, one of the things that I sort of, I think, clicked for me or that I thought of when you um, gave that sort of definition of what what romanticism is in storytelling according to Rand's definition of man's will is potent and his will is, uh, you know, it's effective and man is not doomed, is that um, art sort of, (laughs) it's illusory and falsifying nature often gives us what we, I mean, it's a means, again, of laying a gauze over reality, of falsifying things to some extent. And so just to take a step back or maybe a critical step, I almost wonder if Rand um, was, was trying, was was authoring those types of stories out of a deep need (laughs) to believe that because um, I mean, in the, the, in the real world that we, we live in, Rand would say, we live in a world of like tyranny and mysticism and ignorance, basically, um, where most of the time people's will uh, is not potent and um, does not actually affect any sort of change upon the world. Right. And so, okay. sorry, sorry. What were you... no, 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 exactly what you said. So she differentiates romanticism from naturalism precisely on what you just said. Naturalists project the world as it is and romanticists project the world as it ought to be right so definitely it's definitely fulfilling a psychological like maybe it's even masturbatory right like if i have a criticism kind of i think it might i wouldn't go that far because i think um it can be but i would say okay so i'll give an example of something that um uh, or of a, a, a artistic property that I'm a huge fan of that may surprise some listeners that don't know me, but anyone who knows me knows I'm hugely into this, that I think actually qualifies um, as man's will being potent and the world is not doomed, and that is Star Trek. Um, and as I think you actually told me and that I wasn't aware of, Rand uh, Roddenberry actually praised Ayn Rand and... Um, which after you told me that it made a lot of sense that there's a yeoman rant on the ship. That's Kirk's uh, love interest in like the beginning of season one. Um, but yeah. 
Um, I guess I, I wouldn't consider it masturbatory. It's almost like Gene Roddenberry's trying to, if it's masturbatory, it's masturbatory in the way that Atom Ray, the Egyptian god of creation, masturbated the world into existence. Um, in their <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a because, great point. Well, but Nietzsche says this. He says through great decadence, you'll get the new child, right? And it's actually awful, right? Like the decadence is awful, but there is a seed in there, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's well, right. Like the the new growth grows on what people typically find repulsive, you know, maggots and detritus and all sorts of stuff like that. That's the fuel for new growth. But, but I I mean, yeah, just to make it like explicitly clear, if it wasn't already, like, I think a lot of that, that art that comes out of a great need that, that is not naturalistic and that is what Rand would call romantic oftentimes is somebody trying to like bring that forth into existence. Like the hopes that by creating the art, you are like manifesting that in reality. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and again, I guess, strangely enough to go back to the Egyptians, the, the further back in history you go, the more of, um, the, or the less of a separation there is between like religion and art. And to the point where in ancient Egypt, representing something like a physical idol or drawing of a deity that is the deity right like um it maybe not i mean it, it's in, in a probably not totally literally but way more literally than we would think about it right because yeah, yeah. more 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 akin to like the way a catholic would think about the eucharist i guess that it literally becomes his body and blood and less the way like a baptist would think about the eucharist where it's just sort of like a symbolic thing you do to remember what happened um so, so the, I think what we get with religion, too, as we come into modernity, is we get the divergence of morality and art. We get And, like, part of this is that morality starts to become more and more of thou shalt, and less and less of, like, here is the ideal man, here is Hercules, or actually, here is Odysseus in the Odyssey, because Odysseus is the faithful man who is trying to return home, Right. And you get less of hero worship and you get more of just like stupid, I don't know, I don't know what to call this, just stupid wash your ears type bullshit. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, hmm. I, I'm i trying to think of how that how that would apply to, I mean, how would you apply that to, to modern superhero movies? Because I don't know, I, I feel like it's almost like all hero worship, but there's like a lot of times there's no message behind it (laughs) other than the most boring, you know, like they learn to work together as a team, (laughs) which is, you know, that like, that's the, the, the sum total of the character arc in a lot of things. I don't know. I, I don't know if there's like a. I think, um, I think there's a good, like, obviously not all superhero movies are made equal. Right. But there's a great scene where Loki is telling everybody to kneel. And, um, and there's this one old guy who just doesn't, right? And, uh, oh, I just tear up at this because I'm a fucking American. Anyway, so he tells Loki, like, oh, no, you know, we didn't kneel in World War II. We're not going to kneel to you now, right? And, like, the guy's going to die, right? He thinks, you think that's going to happen. 
but then he's saved miraculously, right? Like Doi Ex Machina, fucking Captain America shows up, right? God shows up. And um, I think that's like actually a good instance of like God. Like um, when Aragorn is charging the gates at the end of Lord of the Rings and he thinks he's doomed, um, like Manwe's, Manwe's uh, eagles show up, right? Like the <clears throat> eagles in Lord of the Rings are a Doi Ex Machina. They're like actually a representation of God. And um, like, that's the proper way to use that, right? Um, I'm sorry, it's a little bit of a tangent, but. Uh... No, well, and you know what's, uh, so you may not know this. Uh, what's interesting about that scene, it actually has nothing to do with the scene. It's kind of totally tangential to what you're talking about, but yeah, it's yeah. actually just like a later irony that the German man who stands up to challenge Loki, uh, that actor um, <laughs> who's talking about how. <laughs> We resisted uh, the Nazis, went on to play Heinrich Himmler in Man of High Castle. <laughs> um, That's so which, fucking good. Yeah, um, I know. It's like almost, I wondered if that was like intentional or something when I, when I found out about that. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it, it is, the Eagles are, I think the quintessential almost example of like a, a Deo Ex Machina in um, like modern cinema, would you, would, would, yeah. would you say? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I guess, so maybe just to ask, so what is the significance of that technique in relation to like romanticism? Are you, are you sort of saying like, that's where we're intervening with our metaphysical need basically in the story? Uh, like, actually, I think it's an example of bad storytelling, to be honest. So, <laughs> okay. so what this is a uh, recently, I read uh, Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn, uh, trilogy. Um, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, but bear with me. I, I promise it'll pay off. Oh, no, it's it, cool. I, I read, I, you wrote a little thing about it and I read it. And I, oh, I know okay. it's good. I know it's um, good. So you should talk about it. So in books two and three, there are two characters who ascend to godhood. And um, it's really it, like, we could bring this back to Rand's uh, definitions, but there's really no character development for the two characters who are descending, who ascending to godhood. Uh, one of them is a scholar and he's like, he studies the world's religions. And like he, like throughout book three, he's always studying them, studying them, studying them. And he can't find one that's truly true. And then at the end of the book, he gets through all of the religions and he, like someone just tells him, well, you just need to have faith. And the guy's just like, what? Like, wh wh why do I need to have faith? Well, then out of nowhere, like the world is ending too, like whatever. But um he has Whatever. faith at the very end and he ascends to mm -hmm. godhood right like it's this this is actually the plot of this very um well-selling book right and they're good books like i'm not shitting on them but i am going to shit on like the idea that truth will not set you free right because he's he's exploring all of these religions and then because of that the author still needs to make a happy ending so what he does is he has a doyex machina where through faith the man is saved right it's kind of this like kierkegaard style like binding of Isaac yeah style that's story, super kierkegaard right? yep especially right. most, especially given the context of the world ending yes um, exactly so what i would say is this is an example of something that should have been a comedy but wasn't it was depicted <laughs> as not a comedy so yeah it, because it's actually funny how impotent his will is but like 
this this writer Brandon Sanderson is a Mormon and he's a you know he's a deep Christian I don't have a problem with that but you know it what it does is it creates this false causality um so in the real world and this is where I might sound like a naturalist in the real world when you discover truth generally speaking if that truth has some kind of practical utility it makes you more powerful right and I don't know, maybe that's the optimistic premise, right? Like the non-Christian premise, the premise of the gay science, right? Like Mm -hmm. that, yeah, through understanding, we can conquer nature, like we're not doomed. Sorry, it's kind of a funny tangent, anyway. No, I think it totally relates to what we're talking about. It also reminded me of just what you're talking about, the end of Mistborn. Um, Have you seen Melancholia, the Lars von Trier? Movie. I fucking hate Von Trier. I can't watch his shit. Oh, really? It's so well, sad. So, I just get over. I hate it because it's so sad. And Melancholy is the... probably the saddest yeah. one. But it basically ends with I mean, the movie is, um, I mean, I could say spoilers, but the movie's been out for years and it's, it's very obvious from the beginning that's a movie about the end of the world and if you know anything about Lars von Trier you know it's not going to end with them preventing the end of the world um and basically in the end it's two characters who are adults and two children and one of them and they're facing the end of the world together and one of the adults um is saying hey we're going to they like get in their um it's like a tent and they're like, we're in a magic cave where the, the asteroid that's heading towards the earth can't harm us. And she's trying to basically, uh, what would you say? Shepherd the kids into death in a fear, in a way that won't have them yeah, in abject yeah. terror. And then uh, the other adult who's with them is like completely hysterically terrified of death. Um, now, ultimately it doesn't matter because they all die. You could look at it like that. But it's interesting because it's like, uh, it's almost like the movie ends with just character studies of several characters face the end of the world and how do they deal with it? Yeah. Um, and they're <laughs> in lot true Lars, so what would that be? That would be, that would be, well, we are doomed, definitely. And I, in a way you could say that would be our, our will matters or is potent yes it does right so yeah this this is why i'm not exactly an atheist because i think that the absurd notion of heaven like is a psychological tool that you're supposed to use like you're actually supposed to use this tool if you're in that situation in particular right and that situation if you're if you're if you're in a hopeless situation i think faith is appropriate because you have no other choice right you have Mm -hmm. to believe Right. Or else you'll give up. Right. Like I I would agree. But this is where my fighting Nietzschean is going to have to come out because it would be like it depends on faith and what. And and I think even in that case, faith in a world beyond. um, I mean, like that's kind of the thing. Right. If we're in a situation where it's like the world is ending and there is no way out of it. um, I might even be inclined to agree with you, but I think that that almost is. a great refutation of Christian values, right? It's great if you're dying (laughs) and doomed. It's like, that's the recommendation that we get ultimately is that like, it's, if you have no future uh, and you're dead, that's when you need Christianity. Um, And so in the course of 
what would you call, I don't want to say normal life because plenty of people face insurmountable tragedies in normal life, but um, in the course of life where you are, when, when you are like, you know, um, the child or the youthful one, when you have your future ahead of you, right? Um, even in that case, there are times when you should have, what would you say, where I would agree with you in the Nietzschean sense, you need faith, quote unquote, but it's, um, yeah, you I need think, to confront think, the absurd. You need to confront the absurd with the absurd. Right. Well, it's also just that, I mean, just to get right down to it, I mean, if if we don't have some level of the irrational or the absurd, you can't do anything at all because you can always, you can always do, did you ever watch Animaniacs? Um, The cartoon show? No, I did not. So Dot, uh, there was a repeating bit where Dot, which is one of the Animaniacs, would go and annoy somebody and she would just ask them why over and over and over again. So like, she'll talk to a train conductor. She's like, what are you doing? And he's like, uh, I'm, you know, pulling on the train horn. Why? Uh, because people at the next stop need to know that the train's coming. Why? So that they know not to drive on the train tracks. Why? Because then they could get hit by the train. Blah, blah, blah. Or like, you know, why should they yeah, get hit yeah, by yeah. the train? You can keep going on forever and ever. Um, and so you have to eventually just set it irrational, just irrationally just say, because, and that's usually how the bit is. They just scream at her, tell her to go away. Um, which is the appropriate response to somebody doing that, which is why, uh, the Athenians were very based and red pilled when they made Socrates drink poison. But, um, (laughs) like, (laughs) so the, um, what were we saying a second ago? Oh, so just with from the angle of like, yeah, we need something that's irrational. Um, I would just say, I think the Nietzsche, Nietzsche's like kind of quest is how do I give people that irrational justification that is not in the world beyond? Because you only, if we are fixated on that, that's, I mean, the way you put it, it that's a religion for dead people, right? So how do I give people that irrational faith that's an irrational faith for living people or for the eternal child. Um, and that's sort of the task. I don't know. I guess maybe we are off the reservation from Randy and ethics at this point. No, 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 we're not. We can type we're not. Again. We're not? We're okay. Absolutely okay. Not. okay. So okay. I'm explain why not. Um, I, I don't know the answer to your question, by the way. Um, I don't think Nietzsche did. No. So, right. Yeah. And, and if I did, maybe I should like, uh, anyway, whatever. Write so, a book, yeah. Yeah. If, if we look at melancholia at the end, like where those, where those characters are sitting there, isn't that a moral quandary? Like, aren't we looking at like an example of like a moral lifeboat? Like we're at, this is lifeboat ethics. Like who do we put on the boat first and why do we put them on the boat first? Right? Like, so it's like, this is like a contrived strange little scenario that we use to clarify some little point in our minds. Right. And I think this is actually um, a purpose of art. Art is model building of morality. And we don't realize this. And most people don't make art in this way. They make art according to their subconscious, right? It's like when Nietzsche discusses like um, like the animal who doesn't know history, right? But the animal, like animals still have sociality, right? Like there are still like tribal animals. Like they do actually have some form of memory, right? Like it's not exactly true. And it's out of this like primordial. Especially the elephants. Am I right? Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't want to be an elephant with an ear infection, but. Oof. um, Sorry, go on. I think that's a Mitch Hedberg joke. (laughs) (laughs) 
sounds like a Mitch Hedberg joke. Um, what was I going to say? I'm sorry. Oh, um, art is a moral. Uh, most people are not making art from. Um, oh yeah, they're making it from their subconscious, right? They're repeating the the moral things that are within their guts, right? Their sense of life, like their psychology, and they're just projecting. They might not even be aware of that. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, right. Yeah, well, um, and I think that that uh, just as a quick interjection i don't think that there's anything wrong with that and i think when people are overly what would you say conscious yeah rational rational i mean i would even say overly conscious of the morality that they're trying to push on people in art yeah you you can be incredibly moralizing in art and still produce something great but i think the chances of you doing that are much higher when you're not conscious of it um when it's like when it's when it's not a moral agenda it's just the truth right because it's what your intuition tells you. So to you, it's just the truth. Um, right, and you're just right. telling your truth. Exactly. And you have to tell your truth. You can't tell someone else's truth. This is, and when you try to tell someone else's truth, it's like trying to live without passion, right? There's this book called Think and Grow Rich, right? Um, and it was written by a psychologist who talked to all these like, you know, uh, robber barons and figured out why they got rich. And he basically tells you it's something you can't get. You have to have it. And the answer is passion. Um, You have to speak from your deep passion or your deep truth or whatever that is, right? And that's why, um, like, I think Rand is kind of silly when she goes after mysticism sometimes, because actually mysticism is a way of providing you enough abstract symbols that you have the chance to... um, express yourself within that abstraction, right? So that you have your truth, right? Like, it's like the definitions are loose enough so that everyone can find a home, you know? And um, yeah, I I think that's totally true. Uh, Well, and that's, I think Rand is, is on, that's her own personal moral baggage. She's on a crusade to eliminate, um, I, I think in a very misguided way, eliminate that irrational mystical element of the psyche. Yeah. But I think maybe what you're pointing to with what you just said is something that Jung was really good at um, basically laying bare that, um, you know, it's really easy to be dismissive of things like alchemy and astrology, but uh, like one of Jung's sort of like skeleton keys for understanding things like mysticism is that whatever is not understood um, about your own unconscious will be projected by the unconscious onto the external world. So people looked up onto the, into the heavens and saw all these constellations and then extrapolated about how these constellations guided human destiny. Um, I mean, the obvious secret uh, or the open secret now is they're telling us about our, themselves, not about the stars um, when it comes to astrology. Yes, yes. right. Um, so their, sub, their subconscious becomes metaphysical, right? Yes. And, yeah. And isn't this the mistake that Nietzsche says all philosophers make? That it's like, it's just like this. It's all about themselves, right? Yeah, it's the congenital defect of all philosophers. Yes, that's what he calls, what he calls it. it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when we look at Rand's definition, I think it's really good, right? Uh, art is a selective recreation of reality according to an artist's metaphysical value judgments. But maybe the value judgments aren't actually value judgments. Maybe they're like hidden premises 
that you accept by yeah, nature, right? Well, maybe their their value judgments and the way Nietzsche says behind logic and its seeming sovereignty of movement stand valuations or uh, yes. physiological demands for the preservation of a certain yes. way of life. So it's not yes. it's not a value maybe in the way Rand would think about it of like. I'm just thinking in terms of like the the Ayn Rand I have read, where it's very, um, uh, what would you say? I mean, uh, trying to come up with an objective basis for morality. It's more of an avowedly irrational basis for morality. Um, and I think, yeah. yeah, on the very deep level, art and religion and morality, and they they all come from that same place. Basically, it's it's a demand. Um, it's a demand of reality. Yeah. Um, all art is Karen, Karenism. It's your inner Karen demanding that reality <laughs> um, be a certain way. So I have this theory about Karenism. I think it's because there's not enough mothers. Like, isn't this just mom energy? This is like, hey, you know, <laughs> hey there, uh, buddy, down there by the crocodiles. Don't fucking go down there or else you're going to get fucking eaten, right? And like Karen's insane screaming about how her child shouldn't be down by the river near the crocodiles makes sense, right? Because you only get one chance to fuck up. But in the modern world, it doesn't make any sense, right? And like, she's projecting this like mother energy onto like all sorts of things that don't need it. Like, please. Right, well, it's also just, it's the mother energy in a world where, um, in, in, in a coddled fucking world where you're, um, where your biggest problem is that they don't have the particular brand of cheese doodles that you wanted. Um, <laughs> and so that seems, if that's your worst problem, it seems catastrophic when it happens, you know? Um, Not cheesy but... boobs. <laughs> I was about Cartman to do my book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. That's a good. <laughs> Cartman is a Karen. We'll see, but Cartman yeah. is, he's the male version. So it's even worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if they're, they haven't, they'll come up with a male name for, for Karen eventually. They always do. Like, you know, it started out with Mary Sue and for a while they would call male characters in fiction Mary Sue's. And then they came up with the term Gary Stew. Um, oh. I don't know if there's like a universal, but I've heard that one. Like Aragon is a Gary Stew in the Aragon novels. I don't know if you ever read those. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And Dude, I just, great, great example. Random Akuna, by the way fucking oh, the yeah. dragon souls in the final book those dragon souls are just like oh it's so dumb sorry go on and well i was just gonna say too it was a random thought i had i haven't thought about or seen anything related to aragon in like years probably more than a decade and i just had the random thought yesterday i was like huh uh what was his name chris paulini literally just took the word dragon and he took the first letter and he he went one letter up in the alphabet and that's the name of his title character, he, Aragon. It's just, he just took the word dragon. That's what he did. I, well, I don't know. I thought know. he was using the word Aragorn from uh, Lord of the Rings and he just took out the R. <laughs> Maybe, but I, w- I think it's too much of a coincidence that if you literally just take that E and change it to a D, you just have the word dragon. He's like, I'm going to write I mean, a fantasy yeah. story about dragons. What's my main character's name? Uh, Aragon like <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know like i love those books this is the thing about criticizing art i think you should love it to criticize it like like i, I love those books but they're they have serious problems 
Oh yeah, man. Well, I grew up like watching, you know, MST3K like type stuff. Like there's a joy to watching um, like terrible art. Um, And, and it's, people will try and explain what that joy is and like with the joy of all art. So you, you would never think that you could perfectly encapsulate what the artistic or aesthetic experience of like great art is in a single explanation, right? Or maybe some people think they can. I brand probably yeah, don't challenge can. me. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, for sure. But I, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's always an argument, right? Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. There's always something someone can say, well, no, I get blah, blah, blah. But I think the same is true of terrible art where people will say, well, it's it's great because it's funny or it's great because, but I, I've heard Tarantino talk about, because, um, you know, Tarantino's backstory was he worked at a uh, at a video rental place in like LA in the 80s, I want to say, or 90s. Yeah. Like, I guess yeah. it must have, been, must have been early 90s. But he's talked about how um, one of his favorite things is when you're watching like a shitty B movie like grindhouse cinema exploitation movie that is bad like badly made and then somehow you start to care about the characters and get invested in it even though you're seeing the boom mic in the frame and the acting is like bad or um you know the effects are awful or the dialogue is cheesy and you still somehow get invested in it and he basically said that's beautiful um and i think a lot of his career has been um an exercise in taking these tropes and conventions of frankly cheesy exploitative cinema and getting people to get super emotionally invested in it. Um, because I mean, if you, if you were to just explain the plot of Kill Bill in plain English, right? Um, it sounds like something a 12 year old would come up with. And yet um, I've watched that movie with people and watched people cry like yeah (laughs) you know um and so like even really that's I don't know if I'm necessarily building up to a point here just I guess even really um terrible art or really poorly made art still has that weird magic to it that um like maybe is what we're talking about of like you somehow connect with the author's metaphysical value yeah 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 um, even in spite of like the technical, the technical angle of it ultimately doesn't matter if that emotional connection happens or that. Absolutely. Um, right. Act, this, and this is the funny thing. This is why video games today suck so much. It's because there's not real storytellers making these things anymore or like why big movies are starting to suck more and more. And they have to go back and use old comic books in order to get their plot because these are not artists actually these are technicians movies are made by committee at this point they're made by technicians and like um businessmen so and this is like i don't know man there's like not a good solution to this it has to do with the division of labor and how little um money you actually make based on your intellectual property right but you get amazing people like james gunn or like tarantino who definitely have a connection to like the human spirit or like whatever you want to call this right and they have a particular way of viewing the world and they have artistic integrity, right? Like it's, yeah. And even Von Trier has this, even if I don't like Von Trier, he's, it's still him. Right. And that's so fucking important. Yeah. And it's, and it's very much him to the point where, yeah. like I was saying earlier, like if you see any Lars Von Trier movies, you know, it's not going to end with the world not ending. 
if it's a movie about the end of the world. Like, it's yeah, I watched the like, one with Bjork up through like where she's like tortured and like I can't remember what, what, what one is called. that one called. It's with Bjork. I, don't know if it's, I can't. There's remember. one called I've seen the Antichrist and Melancholia, and I've seen a couple others, but I don't know if I've seen one with Bjork. That's Bjorn, rad. whatever her Bjork. name is. Bjork the, gets tortured, not the singer. Yeah, the singer. She gets tortured in a Von Trier movie? Yeah. Damn, I should see this. Dude, see, hate, you're I, like I excited about music. this. I hate you, music. I like her music. <laughs> so, so I want to see her get tortured for that. No, I'm just kidding. She's um, got that like but, annoying tribal singing. Like it's like off tune on purpose. Like mm-hmm. my <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> so so let me let me make this not fun and let me read some uh, Ayn Rand moralizing. Okay, I think so. This is like her view. This is literally her words. It's about morality. Okay, quote, apart from its many other evils, conventional morality is not concerned with the formation of a child's character. It does not teach or show him what kind of man he ought to be and why. It is concerned only with imposing a set of rules upon him, concrete, arbitrary, contradictory, and more often than not, incomprehensible rules, which are mainly prohibitions and duties. A child whose only notion of morality, i.e. of values, consists of such matters as wash your ears, don't be rude to Aunt Rosalie. Do your homework. Help Papa to mow the lawn or Mama to do the wash the dishes. Faces the alternative of either a passively amoral resignation leading to a future of hopeless cynicism or a blind rebellion. Observe that the more intelligent and independent a child, the more unruly he is in regard to such commandments. But in either case, the child grows up with nothing but resentment and fear or contempt for the concept of morality, which to him is only, quote, a phantom scarecrow made of duty, of boredom, of punishment, of pain. A scarecrow standing in a barren field, waving a stick to chase away pleasures, end quote. That's an awesome quote. And not only do I agree with it, um, I... I involuntarily i thought about nietzsche when she was <laughs> talking about that it was almost a psychoanalysis of nietzsche in some way um yeah she so she's very nietzschean i think yeah sorry go on oh well, i meant almost like nietzsche strikes me as the the intelligent rebellious child she's talking about who um basically grows to i mean rather than he, he was um so intelligent that he decided rather than being rebellious in the way in like a vulgar coarse way um, I'm going to be <laughs> rebellious if by um, like murdering your God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, but, um, right. Yeah. But no, that's so true. So, but Rand, uh, so what is she getting at there that we, we need to, the alternative is to, to have, to be truthful with the, the, in our instruction of morality or explain, don't, don't do it as a set of like dead rigid commandments. So I'll uh, I'll quote, um, this is like two pages down where she answers exactly your question. Um, It is not abstract principles that a child learns from romantic art, but the precondition and the incentive for the later understanding of such principles, the emotional experience of admiration for man's highest potential, the experience of looking up to a hero, a view of life motivated and dominated by values, a life in which man's choices are practicable, effective, and crucially important, that it is a moral sense of life, right? So she's saying that from art, sorry? Sorry, go on. 
life follows art, right? There's a terrific book by uh, John Gardner um, called In the Suicide Mountains. And it's all about this, that life follows art, right? That we actually emulate art, right? That it actually is moral, deeply moral without even meaning to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what I was going to say is it sounds like if we're to relate this back to um, use and abuse of history for life, she's talking about uh, a monumental approach. Yes. Yes. It's, it's an inspiration and an example exemplar of how to live is how morality should be taught. And that that's how you, that's, um, that's the romantic means of doing art in her view. Yes. I'd say that's correct. Correct. And you can see you can see how today, if art is too critical, what happens is that it has no message and it devolves into this kind of like journalism or like revisionist history, right? Where it's like, that's not what we want from art, actually. Like we don't actually care about women's representation in art. What we want is a true woman, right? Like we want the woman that's in your heart, right? And you need yeah. a great, you need someone with a great heart to do that. You can't just fucking use these political symbols as though they have any artistic meaning. Like political symbolism and artistic symbolism are two different worlds. Like, and whenever the- political- well, one, one of those is overtly, it's what we're talking about before, it's overtly conscious and agenda driven basically. Yeah, yeah, right. And that's why so, it's bad. And some of Rand's art actually struggles with this because she's propagandistic, right? Well, so I mean, yeah, she wrote a 70 page speech at the end of her novel on- on okay. Her it's, philosophy. It's, it's worse than that. It's three quarters of the way through, right? So, and it like breaks up the action. Like, it's so inappropriate. Like, there's a speech in Fountainhead which doesn't feel inappropriate, right? It's like, oh, I could take some time off for a philosophy here, right? It's kind of like a guitar solo, you know? Like, you get to the development section of the book, and you're like, oh, okay, I can do something weird here. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it um, would be like if you decided. Um, <laughs> to do it like a you've got a like 30 minute song and um like 20 minutes of it are guitar solo <laughs> yeah right, right. worse a drum worse a drum solo yeah oh gosh um what was i gonna point out oh, i lost my dream but... i'm sorry I... oh <laughs> ran. for a joke so okay, so yeah, she if you look at her like she's propagandistic in the same way the soviets are like there's this idea of the new Soviet man and the new Soviet woman. If you look at like the art from this period in Soviet history, it's beautiful, right? Like it's all about this like Ubermensch type of thing, right? And like Rand has the same type of propaganda, but I'd like to talk about Jonestown again. So like in the history of America, you get these like occasional collectivist movements that just like erupt out of nowhere almost, right? And I think what it has to do is the inherent neuroticism of our individualistic culture, right? Like we're so individualistic that we neurotically desire this like collective sense of community. And it's actually deep, it's what makes us deeply religious as Americans too, because that's how we express it, right? We don't express it through the state usually, um, unless it's like the, F, like the FDR period. Um, I mean, occasionally up a whole can of worms with this, just so you know. Okay, but uh, it's going to get back to Rand. So my point here is that the same neuroticism existed within Soviet culture because they were so collectivistic. You'll get these extreme individualists, right? So Rand is like the reverse of 
like the people's temple, right? She's extreme individualism in response to, and it's almost like a neurotic mm-hmm. manifestation, right? Almost, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 maybe well, it is and, neurotic. And, it definitely is neurotic. It's, it's interesting. Well, there's like sort of a dialectical thing there, right? Because yeah. the, the new Soviet man, that's premised on the idea that what would you say like the communist theory that we are all fundamentally like made worse as individuals by the by the alienation of capitalism right yeah and so and like a lot of the anarchists uh like the 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 less what would you say the less like authoritarian versions of communists or marxists like the your bakunins and those type of people i think are even more on that tip of uh, um, the the idea that socialism or communism is going to bring about, it's not just going to like be, oh, this glorious collective we live in. Like, no, you will be transformed into a better, more free individual. Um, and so even, even in and of itself, that tension, I guess, exists in that, like there's like a year, it's almost like an expression of that under, that yearning underneath Soviet society right yeah that, um, yeah you have to depict the new individual and connect with people on that level and then to go back to what you're saying about america um i so i wrote an article i guess it was like a year ago now um just with the evocative title or provo- sort of provocative rather uh, america was founded by cults um yeah which i read that article the, yeah yeah um that we always um have had this like city on a hill idea or like the next green pasture idea where I can go and start my own commune according to, and really what that is, is like, it's a search for, it is religious, but underneath that, it's like a search for moral purity um, of, of a community where everyone believes the same thing. And it's not, it's not just important that it's the same just because it's the same, but it's like, we have figured out what the right way to live is. And we, we, can't have people corrupting it with the wrong way to live, right? right um, and right. how that's always been there. And that that also has a weird dialectical thing in it, right? Because you're searching for a community, but it's also driven by this urge to, re- to secede <laughs> from the current religious order. And so like a, a good example in modern times, uh, there's this atheist dude, Dan Barker. He was like the chair of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And I remember reading his book, which was like a, a typical new atheist book uh, around yeah, the turn yeah. of the millennium, uh, where it's like his memoir. And then also this half of it is like a, arguments about how Christianity is lame. But um, it, one story he told is how a church that his family was part of when he was a child uh, actually split over whether or not the communion cup should have a handle or not. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, and, but I'm oh. like, and so you're supposed to like, he's just making the argument of like how absurd um, let's all laugh at the silly Christians. But I mean, on another angle, I mean, I mean, Islamic scholars will debate or Orthodox scholars will debate over things that are certainly no less ridiculous right and are you familiar with russian history and the schism um so the, the schism you, you don't mean the great schism no i think i do east and west like the uh, orthodox church splitting from the latin church 
Yeah. So like when the Russians tried to reintegrate into the Greek Orthodox practice, I'm getting a little bit of this wrong, but forgive me. Um, the old believers, they would like, uh, it was like they were signing the cross like slightly differently. And man, do tons of people were killed over this. <laughs> like, just, right. just like, little, it's exactly what you're talking about, except it happened in Russia and a lot of people died. Right. So right. like the madness of like holding on to the, but I think in this case, it's a political symbol right? Like this isn't an actual artistic symbol because the artistic meaning is so obvious. It's basically the same in both cases, right? Yeah. Like a lot of the early church schisms, they're not actually splitting over. I mean, yeah, you had some differences in doctrine like Nestorians and Manichaeans and where there were, in uh, what are they called? Monophysites and all these different yeah, like, yeah, yeah. metaphysical issues, but it seems like, um, okay, there's some big ones, but then you get into parsing out finer and finer distinctions. And you're right, it does become political. I mean, you could even argue that the great schism between the Latin church and the Eastern church was essentially just a political dispute. I mean, it was the Pope trying to assert himself as the first bishop among all the other bishops. Whereas before, um, the, the Orthodox position is no, the bishops are all equal. You can be the pontiff of Rome, but you're not, that doesn't make you ahead of everybody. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's like, that was basically the Latin church saying, you're all under us now. We are the seat of this. And they said, no, we're not. We don't have to listen to you. And it really can be, I think, explained that simply in some sense. But then in another case, I'm not exactly sure, like when we look at America, like the Puritans, I think they were serious. Like, uh, and I think that might've been like an artistic quote unquote, if we're using yeah, artistic in this broad yeah. extended sense here to refer to like this metaphysical, like moral demand for reality. I think they did have a different one than the current Anglican church did. Well, there's this insane power you get when you integrate like an artistic vision with a political vision, right? Like when the aesthetic becomes the political, like haven't you like lined up the planets like, isn't this some yeah. kind of like bizarre, like really strong because you're Alchemy. really strong. Yeah. Yeah. It's this incredible strength because then your myths are your reality. Right. It's uh, like when Zizek says this phrase, uh, he was the divine instrument of his own divinity. Right. It's this like, oh, this is funny. Cause it's like, this is like Carl Schmidt stuff too. And yeah, it, it's like when the theological becomes the political, I guess, anyway. But I think that's, um, huh. So I think art is moral and politics is about morality. So ultimately they are all related, right? This is the integrated right. relationship between, um, between there's philosophical something, thinking. There's something about, pol because politics is, I would say, it's grounded in power relationships. So it has an yeah. moral element to it. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I would almost say when you, well, how did you put it? Like when you align your the artistic and the political, um, I think part of the power you have there is, so there's a passage in Nietzsche in Human All Too Human where he's talking about, um, it's an incredibly Machiavellian passage um, where he's talking about um, how a tutelary government, which um, for those who don't know, like that's like the old, like the, the very old school conservative conception of government right, is that uh, basically men are inherently 
bad. And the government is there to instruct you on how to be a good person. Um, that, you know, we would tend to think of government as just like maintaining law and order, right? And so like a lot of Americans, that's like the outline I just gave of like tutelary government is like the exact, that's like our kryptonite political philosophy or not kryptonite is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? It's like our, it's like our exact inverse because America, although it's never been like a pure libertarian country, um, we have that libertarian streak, which is basically premised on the idea that people are, if not basically good, can be trusted to manage their own affairs to a large degree. Um, and that it's not the government's job to tell you how to live. Um, that's like anathema to us. Um, but so anyway, Nietzsche is talking about tutelary government and he says, um, and this is a very uh, apropos of how Nietzsche talks about politics and like the human ulti human era, where he sort of phrases it like, okay, if you're going to run a tutelary government, here's what you have to do. Um, he basically says, if you're the prince, I know that you personally, because as a higher person and an educated person, you're not going to believe in the religion, obviously. Like you're going to be a free thinker and you're going to be above it. But the common people are going to believe in their religion. And then he basically, the reason why I brought up this passage is he goes on to talk about how the religion does things for the people the state can never do. And so even as tempted as you are to like supplant the power of the religion and the priests or the church um, so that you can have more power, um, you know, he says, for example, like during times of like famine or war or privation, religion can like comfort people in their innermost heart. Like you can't do that as the prince. Like, yeah, you could you know, you can get grain or bread to the people when they're hungry, but you can't like shepherd their dead father's soul who died fighting a battle to the afterworld, right? You need religion for that. Um, and so he basically says you should, um, you should let the, you should actually foster religion, even though naturally higher people will not be religious. And so I, I feel like maybe what we're getting at here is like, whenever somebody achieves that like unity it's they've like managed to do what Nietzsche says in that passage you can't do as a prince right when yeah. you become like the prince bishop and suddenly you are you're not only running the external world that people live in you're also like comforting their innermost like soul or they're speaking to their heart and all that which is something that um yeah it's like uh it all comes from the same place, but it's um, it's a power that most political figures don't ever have. And actually, ironically, and this is like a criticism that Robert Michels makes, we probably have more figures in politics today under democracy that are playing a more and more religious role and a more and more moral aesthetic role, like slipping into that domain than there have ever been. Um, you know, maybe nothing as horrific as like, so like, you know, I didn't want to bring this up earlier, even though it's so obvious, I'm sure everyone's already thought of it, but like the Nazis, so the perfect example, like unifying art and politics. Yeah, that's um, why they're know, in, so beautiful. And we still love Nazi art. Like, <laughs> fuck, dude, everybody's still dressing like a Nazi just because it's fun. Like, but like the in fuck? the uh, in that uh, Nuremberg rally, like video, there's like I, I remember listening on the last podcast on the left. There's like thirty six thousand swastikas or something. 
um, it's a shitload. Um, so it's like they basically manifested this symbol, um, you know, um, in this aesthetic. And so really fucking powerful. Um, and so, you know, and they use that to fucking kill millions of people. Um, but so I'm not saying like we have any politicians that are like doing anything as horrible as that. I'm just saying um, democracy does. How do you how would I put it? It like lends itself to that in some some way. We 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 tend to like see our leaders as being more than just like cynical, amoral actors. We like get swindled routinely. Like even people like it seems like every generation they get swindled by a charismatic political figure who like does actually win people's hearts and minds, and then they totally fuck over the populace create a bunch of cynics and then the next generation gets swindled again and it just keeps happening over and over again it seems to be what democracy is good at yeah it's monkey i wouldn't just say it's democracy i'd say it's the problem of mass communication right this goes back to the you know napoleon right (laughs) like i I don't know man i mean it goes back even further than that like is the symbolic the real you know yeah it's i don't think we're ever gonna fix this problem (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, that's probably true. I think, um, and you're probably right. It is mass communication. Well, and I mean, we have, I don't know if you just want to talk about, um, the ability of mass communication or like artistic, I mean, that would, that's what a meme is, right? Yeah. 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 It's a mind. It's a mind virus that gets Hitler was always a meme. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry, (laughs) but real Hitler was never impressive meme hitler is impressive it's the lo- we want the lie right and this yeah, is he's like batman uh, yeah yeah exactly. as, as batman i can be a symbol yeah so <laughs> and this is maybe this is why everyone hates cynics because and this is i guess this is a general lesson for people if you're a cynic right if you're like a machiavellian and I mean this in like the, the highest sense, like it's a great thing to be a Machiavellian, right? It's a great thing to see power for what it truly is. But if you're talking to someone who doesn't understand this and does not have the wisdom, then you have to wrap your cynicism in this like goodwill and earnest helpfulness, because unless you're doing that, they're never going to understand that. And actually, if you want to teach people how power works, you could use art because then you can address them in like a hedonistic setting like most artists has hedonistic qualities right but you can also slip in the didactic stuff about um like power relations right like if you look at lord of the rings he could have just titled the series satan because it's about the lord of power right it's about the relationship and the battle between power and the bonds of men right like our pro-social bonds and the wanting to have this like predatory um like there's a predator in every human being and they're trying to predate on the people next to them and you know like we're trying to enforce this sense of harmony right yeah like i don't know like like the ring of power like brings that out in you uh, yeah, exactly. Predatory. Yeah, exactly. Right. And 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 Frodo and Sam are the story, are the personal story, right? And then you have the cosmic level story going on with the kingdom, right? So you get like the microcosm and the macrocosm. It's really cool. and then, well. There, and then Lord of the Rings, there's even the metaphysical level of like 
ancient, like the Maiar and the like the uh, yeah Melkor and his um, right his um, what is it? What is the underlying metaphysics? He's like a discordant note, basically. Yeah, he, he's discord, right? And uh, and uh, Manwe is no Manwe is just the highest. It's Iluvatar, I think. It's concordance, right? And um, see, but both I, I don't know. Like this gets into goofy metaphysics, right? Like you need both to have like music though, really. Like you have right. to have dissonance. Well, that's that's I mean, that's the thing. That's the story, right? Yeah, and yeah. You have to have um yeah, yeah. Uh Sauron is the tritone. Yeah, yeah. You have story. to have you have to have the dialectic. Like yeah. I hate to make this so silly, but you have to have this process of expansion and refinement, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, dude, I mean honestly, I so just to, to bring it back to that that yeah. Nietzsche essay, use and abuse of history. Yeah, I sorry. totally agree with him on Hegel. No, we're this has been great, honestly, so far. But I totally agree with him on Hegel. I still use dialectic as a mode of analysis, though. Oh yeah, because um, I don't agree with Hegel's. I mean, honestly, and <laughs> I don't. Um, I, I'm more in the like dialectical materialism um, mode of analysis than like Hegelian dialectic. Um, although they're very related, but like, uh, you know, obviously dialectical materialism is Marxism. Um, those, that sort of dialectic, I think makes a lot more sense to me. The And you can use it without agreeing to mark Marxist like goals or whatever. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, the, the idea that you, what would you say you sharpen these contradictions or you bring these contradictions to the fore through this like negative interaction um i still think is totally useful i think really what nietzsche is rebuking in the essay is 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 almost like hegel's uh the way you put it like eschatology uh, is what yeah. he finds yeah. the issue with um that he has to he has to give it like a goal and a end point and a um you know, he makes it a, this activity of the world spirit and all that. Um, I think that's really his issue with it. I wasn't really, I guess, going to a broader point, just saying, you know, dialectic's cool. Um. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me contrast the dialectic with like another, um, I love this, uh, it's like a fairy tale. Once upon a time, there was a princess and she had her crown and she was sitting near a pond and she accidentally drops her crown into the pond. And the murky water she can't see the crown so she starts shrieking right and all of her servants come and they get into the pond and they're all looking for the crown and they can't find it and as they're digging through the mud the mud is just more and more and more and more and finally they all give up and at the end they all sit down at the pond and they just sit there for a while and the silt settles down and at the end you can see the crown just perfectly in the water and the princess just leans over and picks it up and mm. So I think sometimes we're not engaged in a dialectic. What we're doing is we're actually making the water muddier by acting. Like, and I think um, the antiquarian view of art and history has, has led us to be overwhelmed by our encyclopedic knowledge of suffering, right? And I think sometimes you just have to forget, right? And this yeah. isn't a dialectic. Like the forgetfulness, the letting the mud drop to the ground isn't a dialectic it's something else it's like i don't know well that's what uh you're actually siding with like a uh uh 
post-structuralist uh, Giles Deleuze. Am his, I? His reading oh. of Nietzsche. Because oh, okay. he's basically, <laughs> his, his interpretation as Nietzsche is against the dialectic. And that uh, the key idea in Nietzsche is genealogy, which is a understanding of difference. And dif- difference meaning like difference, like the master and slave, because Hegel, he obviously talks about the master and slave dialectic. That's how he introduces the concept of dialectic in the like historical sense, I believe, is by talking about how, um, you know, we become this becoming conscious of these political power relations, so to speak, between the master and slave through the dialectic. Um, Whereas Nietzsche says, no, these are two distinct things that are not the same. Now I have, I have a third interpretation that I think if you actually pay attention to the word genealogy, um, that involves reproduction and joining of two things. Um, And it's not through negation. And I think, actually, I think what Nietzsche is talking about where he talks about how we all have the master and the slave morality in our hearts today um, in that he's talking about, but I do agree with Deleuze that there are two distinct origins. And I don't agree with Hegel that there's like this, like, you know, because Hegel would have said that would have been like an explanation, right. For why in the 1800s um, you start to see a lot of the intellectuals and people like, you know, the American civil war is fought in slavery. One of the, the countries that quite frankly in America was doing some of the most brutal forms of slavery that still existed in the Western world, like chattel slavery um, in slavery through this violent conflict. Right. So the Hegelian explanation would be, um, you know, the contradictions have been sharpened through the dialectic until we've become conscious and of you know, like what you're saying of all this suffering and blah, 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 blah. Um, so I, I under, I guess that's my way of saying, I understand maybe where Hegel is, uh, how he's coming to that position, right? Is, is that um, it seems like in Europe around that time, um, there's this ever increasing heightening of consciousness and scientific understanding. And meanwhile, there's all this conflict and oppression and all that. And it seems like through all that conflict and oppression and suffering, we're like gaining this greater awareness of ourselves. Um, that's just sort of my, I don't know, what would you say, like historical biographical explanation of why Hegel would have thought the way he did, aside from the arguments he made for it. Um, God, where was I going with that? Um, but Nietzsche, I think, what would you say? Oh, so going back to what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's a great point, though, of the muddying of the water and um, basically like that the dialectic, this, this is what I'm coming to. I think the idea that it was ideas, that it was becoming conscious of ideas or becoming conscious of new awareness or self-awareness or reflectivity of consciousness is what actually moved history, I think is what is actually wrong, right? And maybe that's like the muddying of the waters is that- um, Oh, that's often, brutal. Oftentimes, the muddying of the waters is that ideas matter. <laughs> <laughs> right. That, that, that we basically oftentimes throughout history, we have a bunch of intellectuals that will argue, argue, or, I mean, it's sort of, uh, what is it? Sir John Glove and his essay on uh, the fate of empires. Yeah. But one of the last stages is the empire becomes um, intellectual with the intellectualism and um and, and so then you just think like, okay, throughout the history of time, 
in every single empire that ever was born, lived, and then died, towards the end of their life, they had all this dialectic. <laughs> and then the whole thing collapsed because really what was moving was something totally underneath all of that yes. like, super yes. conventional intellectualism. Yes. It's funny because Rand would be totally opposed to that view of history. She totally thought that ideas moved history. And that's just, I am not a Randian. It's like, no way, man. Like, I'm I'm like looking forward to a point in art where like we let go of the tragedies of the 20th century. Like maybe, maybe then we'll just repeat them immediately. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we need the we need the constant. Like empire art, but like empire, We're, like uh, the artist's understanding of empire is becoming more and more degraded. Like you get someone like which is uh, what happens as empires deteriorate, right? Like you get someone like Miyazaki. Like if you look at Miyazaki's art, especially like his earliest or his earliest art, like Nausicaa, he understands empire. Like he understands what happened in World War II there's this beautiful allegory about like the atom bomb and our relationship with nature. Like he's a fucking genius, but he's going to be dead real quick here. Right. And like the wisdom of actual suffering, right. Is being replaced by this, like, you know, it's like the scarecrow. It's, it's, it's just a fucking like people, I don't know. They're going to like the lingering. Yeah. The phantom. Yeah, well, and, and it's 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 a phantom that's being reinterpreted by people who don't haven't known the suffering. They've known a coddled existence, and so um, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, it would like that knowledge would decay away, so to speak. Right, because ultimately we learn through through blood, right? Like you have to learn well, the lessons they, yourself. It's why they would slap a knight after he takes his oath. Um, i mean but if you think about it it's like the surprise and the shock of sudden pain you will form a memory like i mean that in like a literal physiological sense like you literally will remember things that were horrifying and painful that's probably why we're not going to get over the horrors of the 20th century for a long time because it's like a lingering trauma well, like, and um, most people, like most people are secret cutters too. Like they love slapping themselves. They love, like, this is why we love thrillers and horror movies and like all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. There's a, there's a cool band called secret cutter. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think we're heading towards an hour and a half. I'm not excited. I haven't been keeping track of time, but I think we're almost there. Yeah. Um, but I think we're at, like, I think we, this was great. Um, I don't Good. know if I have a clean. Oh, I want to make I want to make one point about uh, yeah uh, Nietzsche. Uh, this was like a side point. Nietzsche Nietzsche's discussion of the Greeks as not being educated in the historical sense, right? Like we would go back to them and we would say, "Oh, these people are not educated." But aren't their myths a projection of the ideal man, right? Of the tragedy of the unideal man? Like the Greeks did have a proper history, a mythical history. A history for life in the form of the Iliad and the right. Odyssey, right? Like the Iliad is has the themes of glory and hubris, right? With Agamemnon and, and um, oh my god, brain fart, Achilles. And Achilles, then yeah. and then Odyssey, uh, the Odyssey is the it has the project the projection of Odysseus, right? I, I touched on this earlier, but just that like so I guess my pitch well, they even had later on Thucydides, who's 
like the first historian. But he's yeah. also what's interesting about Thucydides. What does everyone remember? It's not it's not because he gives a riveting account of the exact events and dates of the Peloponnesian War. It's because it has Pericles' funeral oration in it, and it has the Melian dialogue. Yeah, it has these like scenes that are terrifying or inspirational or like instructive right. for life. The way you're saying, yeah, yeah, they're moral. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's allowing it allows you to it allows you to swallow an entire moral lecture in like a scene, right? It's like the idea of pictures worth a thousand words, right? Well, a piece of art is worth like ten books on philosophy, right? Yeah, um, and uh, I guess. Uh, final little note on the Iliad and the Odyssey. I think the, in the modern time, the comparable version of this is like King Arthur and then like Gawain and the Green Knight. Like, because like Gawain and the Green Knight is this beautiful story. And obviously we don't read this anymore, but some kids learn it. But like the story of like faithfulness and homecoming, right? Gawain and the Green Knight. I think they had a, they had a movie made on it recently. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, anyway, really? yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well, I, I was, yeah, because I guess, I mean, by the time you're in the Hellenic period, I mean, the Trojan War was ancient even to them, to some extent. Yeah, so, right? whoa, I mean, whoa, I want to make this point, um, that, like, the current domination of the Anglo-Saxon culture in the world is directly related to our myths dealing with King Arthur and the whole, in the Knights of the Round Table. Like, actually, okay, you can't just say that. You gotta, yeah. <laughs> well, you no, no, to, no. Like these are the stories we tell our children, right? Like these these are what the boys speaking English mm. grow up learning, right? So the morality that is implicit within King Arthur and like the other stories associated with him are going to be the stories that children learn, right? I don't know. I, I, just this is a funny connection. I don't know. But well, that is that is interesting to think about. That maybe the like what the CIA spooks like bringing down governments and shit think of themselves as the Knights of the Round Table watching over their kingdom <laughs> you know, like, on some subconscious level like uh, when they're planning on you know like murking Mosaddegh and putting in the Shah and Iran they're looking at it like they're slaying a dragon and like putting things right so that the spice can flow I, I'm sorry I'm mixing metaphors here <laughs> from Dune uh, dude yeah yeah dude right like anyway but i think unfortunately like people thought king arthur was real like people still think it's real kind of it's like santa claus like we live in this bizarre time of hyper realism right like where we know that the myths are myths like whereas we probably shouldn't <laughs> like i don't know yeah right it is a it's a weird time to be a human where for the because we're living in this blip of history, but for most of like prehistory where people living in an oral history, yeah, they're getting myths that they didn't know were myths. And so, yeah, it, and that is probably part of the problem and par probably why we dismiss the power of art um, to the degree that we do and don't right. understand the moral quality that art has because we're like, oh, it's just a, it's just a story. It didn't really happen. And right. we don't understand that it's like, no, that's still motivating you. Uh, that's still um, that's still the mind virus, the meme. That's still giving you a morality, and you think you're above it because you can just say that's just a story. But I really don't think that's true. I think right. You know, so people so are maybe still... maybe the point of this podcast then is to say, hey, 
you know, history is used and abused and some history makes us quicker. Yeah, well, the same is true of art because art is also part of history. And Nietzsche does mention this in the essay, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we might say too that um, uh, about Rand that maybe she used and abused Nietzsche, right? Like, mm-hmm. I know we didn't get into where she's wrong or like where she's particularly right, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, who cares? Every, every, as Nietzsche says, and I'll end on this note, uh, no philosopher has ever been proven right. So um, I think... We'll leave it there. Uh, Carl, do you have anything to plug? No, no. I, I'm no. going to release a book awesome. someday. I'm writing fiction. Okay. But... <laughs> and I've read some of your book. I very much enjoyed it. Um, I, I, you don't have a title. Do, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's oh, no. It, it's called The End in Itself. It's, the uh, End in Itself. That's right. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, like, it's like a pro-Nietzschean, I don't know. It's, it's pro-natalist. It's like pro-child. <laughs> I guess yeah. that's. I have so the book cover out planned for... out. Yeah. The book cover is so going to keep... be like a, a kid painting a picture of himself. And then it's like recursive. So like he's painting, like it, it goes like in recursively. Anyway, that's kind of the idea. So if you see that picture in the bookstore with the title in, in itself, and it's written by Carl Nord, go ahead and buy it. Um, already. Uh, well, Carl, thank you very much. We thank you, Keegan. Thank you. Thank you. Alrighty. Uh, see you later, everybody. See you next week. Thank you.